And if you have a Bible today, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter number four is where we're going to be today. And I'm looking forward to continuing our series in the book of Ephesians. And we're calling this series Note to Self. And the reason we're calling this series Note to Self is because the book of Ephesians reminds us of our identity in Christ and who we really are and the truth about ourselves. And so we're going to be in Ephesians chapter four today. And if you are ready to dive into God's word, would you say amen? If you need a Bible today, there should be a Bible in the seat back in front of you. And most of the verses will be on the screen today, but we want to follow along in God's word and uh, look to what he has for us today. Ephesians chapter four, verse number one, the Bible says this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. And so Paul is a prisoner and he's writing this letter to the local church there in Ephesus. And he is encouraging them to walk worthy. Your walk spiritually is your conduct. It's how you carry yourself. It's your, it's your lifestyle. And so he says, carry yourself, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you were called. Verse number two, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity. Everybody say unity this morning. Keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, but what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting or the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect or complete mature man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head even Christ from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making, uh, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. A powerful section of scripture that we're going to study this morning. And for a few minutes, I'd like to speak to this subject today, a healthy body, a healthy body. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll jump in today. Father, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. And God, thank you for this time that we can come together and study your word. And Lord, I pray that we will remember today that your word will not return void. And so it's not about uh, what we think or what we have to say, but God, we recognize the power and the authority of scripture. And God, I pray that today we would submit to that. 
And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us in a great way. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit. And I pray that we can leave challenged and changed uh, because of our time together. We love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said this morning at the 930 service, how many of you would say that you are fairly health conscious. Can I see your hands? You're fairly health conscious. Uh, recently, my wife, Katie, in the morning, she has been trying to get me to drink uh, a turmeric shot. And uh, it's this little uh, drink, and she uh, wants me to drink this because it's supposed to, you know, make me more healthy. And at first, I didn't want to do this, but now I've, I've kind of started to, enjoying, uh, to enjoy uh, drinking this turmeric shot, mainly because it makes me feel healthy. And so I can drink a shot of turmeric in the morning, and I can enjoy a plate of nachos in the evening, and it all kind of just cancels everything out together. And so it kind of works out good that way. Uh, I saw this video recently, this viral video, where this marketing expert, he uh, rebranded a can of Coca-Cola. And he took the same ingredients, but he just kind of repackaged it and rebranded it to make it sound more healthy. And I brought a picture this morning. Instead of calling it Coca-Cola, all natural, thrive, sparkling cola. It's all natural, 100% plant-based, gluten-free, low sodium. How many of you are like, that's a healthy drink that I can enjoy? It's just Coca-Cola. How many of you are having some trust issues right about now, right? And uh, uh, it sounds healthy, but but actually not, not super healthy. You know, I, I think that when it comes to our physical bodies, that we should be good stewards of the bodies that God has given us. First uh, Corinthians 6.20 tells us that, that we belong to the Lord and our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we should be good stewards physically. Now we come to Ephesians chapter four and Paul's going to talk about a healthy body, but he's not talking about our physical bodies. In fact, Paul is going to talk about the body of Christ, which is the church. It's us. And he's calling us to demonstrate what a healthy church body uh, should look like. Uh, throughout the New Testament, there are different metaphors used to describe the church. Uh, one is the bride of Christ. And uh, uh, Jesus wants a pure bride. And we are the bride of Christ as the church. And uh, another metaphor is that of a building, that we are bricks in God's house together. But the most frequently used metaphor for the church in the New Testament is that of a body. That we are the body of Christ. He is the head of the church and we are to uh, uh, fulfill the functions that God wants us to fulfill. And so Paul in Ephesians chapter four is gonna talk about a healthy church body. How many of you today would say that you are somewhat interested in what a healthy church body looks like? Anybody like that this morning? Now, Paul's gonna demonstrate this. He's gonna teach on this, but there's, a, there's an important distinction that we have to make as we approach chapter number four of the book, the book of Ephesians. And Paul kind of carries this same uh, template throughout his letters where he would lay a theological and doctrinal foundation, and then he would make a transition to a practical application. And so the first three chapters deal with the doctrinal foundation. And then starting in chapter four, he starts to get into the practical applications and implications of that doctrinal foundation. Now bear with me because that order is very important. A lot of times we mix it up. Uh, Paul says, in light of what we believe, chapters one through three. Now we can understand how we can behave starting in chapter four. Do you see the order there? Because a lot of times what happens is we focus on the externals and we focus on how we are to behave while we don't understand fully what we believe. And I've seen many people uh, in my life that went to a Christian elementary school and a Christian high school and they went to a Christian college and, and uh, then after they graduated Christian college, they ended up leaving the faith entirely. Why? Because they understood what was expected of them externally but they never really understood what they believed internally. And so Paul says, okay, we have to understand first what we believe. We have to understand first how we are saved uh, by grace through faith, Ephesians chapter two. We have to understand who we are in Christ, Ephesians chapter one. And now that we understand that, let's go on to how we can carry ourselves and how we should behave. In fact, notice the transitional word in chapter four, verse number one. Notice what it says in verse number one. I, therefore, in light of everything that we just talked about in chapters one through three, 
Therefore, now we can move forward in light of what we know doctrinally and positionally and, and theologically. Therefore, we can move forward. He says in verse 1, Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. In light of what God has done for us, now we should walk worthy of this calling by which we have been called. But notice again the order. We do not walk worthy in order that God will love us. Chapters 1 through 3, God already loves us more than we could ever imagine. And in light of that love and in light of our salvation now, because of a motivation from love and the gospel, we are called to walk worthy. And not to gain more love, but because God loves us so much. And so he makes this transition. And he's going to talk about uh, this uh, idea of walking out our faith, our lifestyle. And in so doing, he's going to give us a snapshot and a picture of what a healthy church body looks like. And I believe that this applies to us individually and also collectively, uh, that if we want to be a healthy, thriving church uh, for the glory of God, then Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 16 is the place, it's base camp, it's where we need to go to understand a healthy church. And so today, what I'd like to do is I'd like to give us uh, three ways that we can prioritize church health. Would that be okay this morning? Uh, three ways that we can prioritize church health. Number one, if you're taking notes, is this this morning. We have to cultivate spiritual unity. We have to cultivate spiritual unity. Now, there's a lot of talk about unity in our culture, in our world today. And typically, when uh, the world talks about unity, what they mean is, you need to think like me, act like me, act like me, believe like me, vote like me, and if you do, then we can be united. But that version of unity is going to be very short-lived. <laughs> uh, that is not a biblical idea of unity. Unity is not uniformity. But, but, but the Bible is going to talk about what unity looks like. And notice what Paul says in verse number two. He's going to describe this unity. Verse number two. Do you have your Bible ready and open today? Notice it, verse number two. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring, striving to keep, to guard, to protect the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, in verse number two, Paul is going to give four ingredients that are absolutely vital for church unity. If we're going to be united, uh, if we're going to be united together as a church, there's four specific ingredients that Paul gives us in verse number two. Okay, so I want to give these four ingredients. Ingredient number one is this, lowliness. He says, with all lowliness, carrying the idea of humility, uh, to walk with humility. Now, in our culture today, humility is not often practiced, but humility is generally perceived to be a good virtue. Would you agree with that this morning? Like, if you didn't know someone, and I was describing someone to you, and I said, that person is a humble person, you would say, okay, that's a good quality to have. That person is humble. But did you know that in the first century, it was not like that? In fact, in the first century, lowliness and humility was actually something to be despised. If someone was considered lowly, that was considered to be cowardly, to be considered shameful, uh, to be considered ignoble. This was not a positive virtue to uh, exhibit in the first century. Why? Because in the first century, you were proud of your achievements and your accomplishments, and you were actually going to gain respect by your uh, arrogance. And so lowliness was actually not something that someone desired in the first century. In fact, uh, one commentator, William Barclay, he said this, before Christianity, humility was not considered to be a virtue at all. The ancient world looked on humility as a thing to be despised. And so the culture in which Paul was writing, they didn't really value humility and lowliness. But when Jesus came along, Jesus transformed everything. And the example that Jesus gave us is found in Philippians chapter 2, verse number 7, which says this, but he made himself of no reputation 
And he took upon him the form of a servant, and he was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Aren't you thankful that Jesus took upon him the form of a servant, and he humbled himself, and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross by which we can be saved today. And so this is good news, but it was demonstrating humility, that, that, that Jesus humbled himself. And so Paul says, you want unity? You really want unity in your marriage? You want unity in your family? You want unity in the church? You cannot expect unity if you don't exemplify humility. It starts with lowliness. If you want to go far, you have to start by getting low. And so he says the first ingredient for for this unity is lowliness. But then he goes on and he gives the second ingredient, verse number two, and that is meekness. And I love the definition of meekness because sometimes we we equate meekness with weakness. Like if someone's meek, you know, they're they're not very strong. They're kind of timid. But the definition for meekness is actually power under control. And I love that definition because you have the power, you have the ability, but you can keep it under control. Like you can can respond to that uh, irritating comment on Facebook if you wanted to, but you're going to keep that under control and you're not going to. There you go. Okay, it touched a nerve over there. I'm going to preach to this side for a second. And, uh, and so meekness is this idea of power under control that, yeah, I could seek revenge if I wanted to, but I'm going to keep my heart and mind under control. Uh, meekness is the ability to be gentle, even when you think you have the right to be hostile, yeah. that, that you can demonstrate gentleness with the people that you're working with. And so uh, we have meekness, we have lowliness. The third ingredient uh, found in verse number two, notice it, verse number two, with all lowliness, meekness, with long suffering. That's the third ingredient. Long-suffering, the definition is actually someone that is long-tempered. It's the exact opposite of someone that's short-tempered. How many of you know someone that's short-tempered? How many of you are that person? Okay, I see, that. I see those hands. And so long-suffering is the exact opposite. Someone that has a long fuse. Someone that it takes a long time for them to blow up and snap at you. Uh, it's the idea of being patient and uh, specifically being patient with people. Uh, there's an author that I enjoy. His name is David McCullough. And he writes all of his books on on a typewriter. And people have told him, you know, uh, you don't have to write with a typewriter. You can write with a computer. You can write a lot faster. And he said, I don't want to write faster. If anything, I need to write slower because I don't think fast. And so he's forcing himself to write slowly. He's forcing himself to be patient. He understands the value of patience. And I think often the reason why we struggle relationally is we don't understand the value of being patient with one another. We're quick to write people off. We're quick to be offended. We're quick to dismiss someone. They look at us the wrong way, and then you're dead to me now. And see, what Paul is saying is if we're going to have unity in the church, there has to be lowliness, there has to be meekness, there has to be long-suffering that we're patient with people. And here's the fourth one, forbearance. Notice what it says in in verse number two. With all lowliness, meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. You know, uh, the uh, definition for forbearance means to put up with one another in love. (laughs) That sometimes you just got to put up with one another in love. Okay, we're going to forbear with one another. Uh, How many of you know a very difficult person? Anybody like that? How many of you are that difficult person? Anybody like, the truth is sometimes we are the difficult person and uh, we're going to deal with difficult people in life. Uh, I read about uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, former president, uh, when he was vice president, uh, he would always give the flight attendants and the flight crew of his airplane a hard time for the temperature in the cabin. And he always wanted it higher or lower and was always being finicky about the temperature, telling them to change it all the time. 
in. The flight crew was kind of irritated about this, and so what they decided to do was to install a fake thermostat in the conference room where he would be. And, uh, and uh, reportedly, he was so happy that he could control the temperature himself, he never realized that it was a fake uh, thermostat in his uh, conference room. And uh, he was just kind of being difficult uh, to work with, and so they decided to do this. And sometimes we're going to have to deal with uh, difficult people in life, but we are to forbear one another in love. The Bible says in Romans 12, 18, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men, as much as lies within you. Everything that you can do to procure peace and unity in your life, pursue that. Notice what it says in verse number three. Everybody sit with me so far? Verse three, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So endeavoring, striving to guard, to protect, to keep unity. You know, unity in the church doesn't happen by accident. It takes endeavoring to keep the unity, to protect. Uh, the idea is to protect it, protect it. A lot of people preach unity. Very few people protect it. Uh, a lot of people want unity. Few people work for unity. He says, endeavor to keep, to protect the unity. By the way, the implication is that unity in the church is not something that we have to manufacture or fake. Unity is something that we already have. He says, you already have unity. You just have to protect it. You say, how do we already have unity? Because we are not united by a denomination. We are not united by a skin color. We're not united by our favorite sports team. We are united by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are united because we are in the family of God. We are sons and daughters of the King of King, kings and Lord of lords. That's why we are united. We are in the family of God. And did you know that sometimes families irritate each other? Have you ever been on a road trip with your family? Anybody like that? We went on a road trip this summer with our family, and I quickly discovered that everyone in our family, all five of us, we have different ideas of what the temperature should be and what music we should listen to. My youngest daughter, Blakely, she wants to listen to the Trolls soundtrack the whole time, and, and uh, my, my, my son, Luke, he wants to listen to Toby Mac, and, and uh, my, my daughter, Liv, she wants to listen to the song Only God by Rock Hill Worship because she's the most spiritual one in the family, and that's what she wants to listen to. Uh, my youngest daughter, Blakely, she wants to eat at Chick-fil-A, and uh, Luke, his favorite restaurant, you ask him, it's McDonald's. He loves to go to McDonald's. And Liv, she wants to go to In-N-Out. Again, she's the spiritual one in the family. And so that's where she wants to go uh, every time. But we all have differing ideas and we all have differing personalities. Uh, But did you know that we are called to love and to nurture and to stay committed to the family? In fact, notice what the Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, verse number 10. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men. Who's that? Everybody, love your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Anyone in need. Do good unto all men, but watch this. Especially unto them who are of the household of faith. How much more should we be serving one another and loving one another and doing good in the family of God? And so so Paul is saying, hey, there are some ingredients for unity. But then not only does he give us the ingredients for unity, then he gives us an example or picture of what great unity looks like. Anybody interested in what that picture is? He gives us an example. Notice it in our text. Verse number four, there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Seven times he mentions the word one, that there is, there is completeness, that there's wholeness, that there's unity, there's one. And three of those times have, have nothing to do with us, but everything to do with God. He says, there's one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. There's one Lord, that's Jesus. And there's one God, God the Father. And so what we see, Paul gives us an example of unity in the context of the Godhead, the Trinity. 
Do you know that there is great unity in the Trinity? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. You think there's unity in the Trinity? Of course there is. The Holy Spirit was always glorifying Jesus. Jesus was submitting to the will of the Father. The Father was saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And so Paul says, yeah, there's some ingredients for unity, but I want to give you an example of unity. And you see it in God, and you see it in the Godhead, in the Trinity. And this means that unity is a very important subject to God. This means that what we're talking about today is not just let's all hold hands and sing kumbaya around the fire together. Uh, No, we're not just talking about warm, fuzzy feelings. We're talking about unity in the local church so that we can strive together to reach more people with a life-giving and life-changing message of Jesus Christ. Uh, This matters more than we know. And so a healthy church body is a church body that is pursuing and protecting and cultivating spiritual unity uh, in the church. And so we have to take a look within. Am I being a firefighter in the church? Am I looking to be a peacemaker and to put out problems? Or am I subtly instigating problems? See, uh, Paul here is calling us and challenging us to endeavor to keep, to protect unity in the church. Now, here's the second thought if you're taking notes today. So uh, the first thought is cultivating spiritual maturity. Number two is this. We have to appreciate spiritual diversity. Appreciate spiritual diversity. You know, an immature mindset walks in a church and says, you know, I need to look for someone that's exactly like me, that thinks like me, that watches the same news stations that I watch, and they have the same, everything's the same. Uh, that's an immature outlook. Because in the body of Christ, there are people from all different backgrounds, all different walks of life, all different spiritual gifts that come together for the beautiful mosaic of what is the local church. And we know that in heaven, there will be people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation that we will gather together and we will worship uh, the name of Jesus. And watch how Paul is going to talk about diversity. Are you with me today? Verse 7. But unto every one of us, everybody nudge your neighbor kind of hard and say, that's you. Nudge your neighbor, tell them that's you. All right. Trying to wake some people up today. Well, Every one of us, that's all of us, is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And so God has gifted, he's gifted, how many of you like gifts today? Anybody like a gift? He's gifted, some of you are like, that is my spiritual gift, to receive gifts, right? And uh, he's gifted us, he's gifted us according to his grace. And so this is a really cool concept, that God loves us so much, and that he has gifted us with everything that we need to live a life of godliness, and those gifts come by way of his grace, verse number seven. Those gifts don't come by way of of, uh, merit and trying to earn them. Uh, They come by way of grace. And so he's saying God's, he's gifted us. We're going to talk about these differing gifts. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, there's this uh, chapter that talks about the spiritual gifts. And it says this in Romans chapter 12, verse number six, having then gifts differing. Okay. There's the key word differing that we all have different gifts. Okay. And now he's going to mention some gifts of the Holy spirit. Okay. We're going to talk about this, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given us again, not by merit, not because we're so great, but according to his grace, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of our faith. And so uh, prophecy can either be foretelling or foretelling. And, and uh, I believe the spiritual gift of prophecy is the ability to communicate the truth of God's word. And so he says, uh, the gift of prophecy uh, um, of ministry, let us wait on our ministering. So the gift of serving and ministering, he that teacheth on teaching, God's given some people the spiritual gift of teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. So encouraging, some people have the gift of encouragement. Some people also have the gift of discouragement, but we won't talk about that. And he that exhorteth on, exor- on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do so with simplicity. So some people have the gift of generosity. He that ruleth with diligence. So some people have the gift of organization and ruling. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Some people have the spiritual gift of empathy. 
Do you see how all of these gifts are very different? They are gifts differing. Immaturity allows differences to divide, but spiritual maturity allows differences to build. We recognize that we all bring something different to the table, but God has gifted us uniquely so that we can serve the local church and magnify the name of Jesus Christ. And so he's saying we've been gifted. We've been gifted. Now, notice what he says in verse number eight. He says, wherefore he saith, he saith, so he's going to make a quotation here. He's quoting actually, verse number eight is actually an Old Testament quote from the book of Psalms. Okay. So before we read it, just know that he's quoting from Psalms. Verse eight, wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts, there it is again, he gave gifts unto men, okay? So he's quoting Psalm 66, verse number 18, and he's quoting where the psalmist is talking about how he is going to ascend on high. This was a prophetic psalm talking about Jesus prophetically when he would ascend back up into heaven, taking captivity captive, and then he delivered gifts to his children. It's the idea of a military conquering king who is taking his captives and giving the spoils to his people. And so uh, the picture is this. We know that this prophecy in Psalm 66 came true. Jesus uh, was crucified on a cross. He resurrected three days later. And then he went and he gave the great commission to the disciples. And a few days later, he ascended up into heaven. And he ascended as a victorious king. By the way, isn't that just a great picture that our king is victorious? That there is nothing too hard for him. That he brings captivity captive and he ascends up into heaven. But when he does, he sends gifts. He is going to gift us. Can I tell you that's exactly what he did when he ascended up into heaven and he sent the greatest gift of all, the gift of the Holy Spirit? In fact, one time Jesus was talking to the disciples in John uh, chapter 16, verse number 7, and he was saying to the disciples, hey, it's necessary that I go away, that I leave you. Can you imagine being one of the disciples and Jesus says, hey, it's actually important that I leave you. I need to go away. And they're like, what are you talking about? No, stay with us. Don't leave. And, and, And notice what he says in John 16, verse number 7. It says this, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient. It's helpful for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter, another name for the Holy Spirit, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And so when Jesus ascended up into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit uh, fills us and indwells us and and guides us into truth. And the Holy Spirit empowers us uh, for service. And so we have uh, these gifts of the Holy Spirit that we're used to edify uh, the church together. But then notice what Paul does in verse number nine. All right, now you got to kind of hang with me for a second because Paul kind of takes a holy rabbit trail in verses nine and 10. Then we're going to get back to the gifts in verse number 11. Everybody doing okay so far? Okay, notice what he does in verse number nine. Now he that ascended, What is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And so what is Paul talking about here in verses 9 and 10? He's talking about the same one that ascended, descended. There's some debate about what Paul's meaning here. Some people think that Paul's talking about what Peter talked about in 1 Peter chapter 1, where where, uh, he says that Jesus would go down to the lower parts of the earth and and preach uh, to the spirits in prison. Some people think that. Some people think that this is uh, simply a reference to the incarnation when God sent his son uh, down to earth and he descended to earth and he lived a perfectly sinless life and he was born in a manger there in Bethlehem. But the point that he's making is this, the God that ascended, descended, and, and, and the point that he's making in verse number 10 at the end is he says this, that he might fill all things. 
that there is nothing in heaven above or earth below that can keep you from the love of God, that he fills all things. And, and this should really encourage us because Paul is presenting this, this powerful picture of, of the power and the glory of God, that he, like a mighty military warrior, he ascended up into heaven, taking captivity captive, and he delivers gifts to us and that he fills heaven above and earth below. He, he, he has created all things and by him all things consist. And Paul is demonstrating the power of our God. Okay, so he goes off on this little holy rabbit trail and then he comes back to the gifts in verse number 11. Everybody still with me? Okay, verse number 11. And he gave, okay, back to the gifts. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And so one of the gifts to the church is the people and the leadership that God can use uh, to further his work. He mentions the apostles and prophets. Now, in the strictest sense, apostles and prophets, um, in the strictest sense, are not active today. In the Bible, there were certain criteria that you had to meet in order to be considered uh, an apostle, one of which was you had to see the risen Lord. And so uh, the early disciples and these apostles that were commissioned. But in its uh, uh, generic uh, definition, uh, the apostle, the word apostle means someone that is sent. And can I tell you that we've all been sent to deliver the good news of the gospel? And he says, he says I've given some apostles and prophets, and these men were used to lay the foundation of the church. In fact, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so these apostles and prophets were the foundation uh, of the early church. And then he mentions the evangelist. The evangelist is someone that has a gift to evangelize and to communicate the good news of the gospel. Uh, but can I tell you uh, that, that, that there are some people that are uniquely gifted in this area of evangelism, but the truth is we are all called to evangelize. Uh, we are all called to go out to the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. And so uh, there are some, though, that God has gifted uh, uniquely with this gift of evangelism. And then he mentions pastors and teachers. And these two words go together. Uh, the word pastor means shepherd. And the primary responsibility of a shepherd is to protect and to feed the flock. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 2, it says this, a bishop or a pastor or an elder, those words are interchangeable, uh, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. And so one of the primary responsibilities of a pastor is to be a teacher and, and to uh, teach and to feed uh, the flock. And so much more could be said about these positions. But what Paul is saying is these are a gift to the church. But then he brings it home on a real practical level in verse number 12. I want you to see it. For, okay, what is all this about? For, he gives, he gives these different leaders, for the perfecting or the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so God has equipped the church with spiritual leaders to train up and to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So according to verse number 12, who is supposed to be doing the work of the ministry? The saints. And this is an important distinction to make because many people think, well, that's the pastor's job. Well, that's the staff's job. That's the evangelist's job. And, and they better be doing that. But can I tell you that uh, we are all called to serve the Lord together. And we are all called to be equipped and to go into the highways and hedges and compel them uh, to come in. And so this is uh, not just the assignment for some. This is for all of us that we are called to serve the Lord together. Uh, every member, a minister. Every saint a servant. And so he says, hey, we've all been equipped for the work of the ministry. And so the Holy Spirit has given us gifts and we are to deploy those gifts that are differing amongst one another. And so here's the application today. If God has gifted you to teach, teach. 
If God has gifted you to sing, sing. If God has gifted you to organize, then figure out how you can use that ability to organize and to help serve uh, in the local church. We don't want to just sit on our gifts. We want to deploy our gifts. And if you've never uh, taken a spiritual gifts test, you can do that. And and, uh, uh, that's one way to kind of identify uh, areas in which you can serve. But all of us are called to uh, minister within the context of uh, the local church. And so we have to uh, cultivate spiritual unity. We have to appreciate spiritual diversity and the differing gifts. But then number three today is this, if you're taking notes. We have to then evaluate spiritual maturity. Now, as we close, we're going to close today, and I'm going to ask that all of us take a look within that we're all going to take a look within and we're going to evaluate spiritual maturity. Uh, None of us uh, want to be uh, stuck in the kitty uh, shallow end of the pool or stuck at the kid table spiritually. We want to be able to make sure that we are growing up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And Paul's going to talk about spiritual maturity. And so as we close, uh, let's notice these last few verses. Verse number 13 says this, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man. Now, he's not talking about sinless perfection. He's talking about the complete person, the whole person, the mature person. That's the goal, that we want to continue to grow in knowledge until we can be complete, mature, and whole. He says, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, if we could understand that phrase, I think it would change everything in the local church. That last phrase. Let's read it again. Unto the measure, the measure. How are we going to measure this? You ever thought about that? How do you measure spiritual maturity? Is it simply how many verses you have memorized? Is it how many hours you pray? How how do you measure spiritual maturity? He says in verse 13, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What this verse means is that when it comes to spiritual maturity, we don't measure ourselves among ourselves. We measure ourselves with Jesus. We're always going to be in trouble if we're trying to be more like that person or more like this person. And I need to look at what they're doing and look at what I'm doing. And am I doing better than them? The Bible says that those that compare themselves among themselves are not wise. We measure ourselves with the only perfect one, Jesus Christ. That's how we can measure spiritual maturity. Am I becoming more and more like Jesus? Did you know that's the goal? That we don't just want to be more like each other. We want to be more like Jesus. This is what spiritual maturity looks like. And so as we close today, I'm going to give three questions, three quick questions that we can ask within to evaluate if we are walking in spiritual maturity. Would that be okay today as we close? Three questions. Let's look at them. Question number one is this. Am I walking with stability? Am I walking with stability? Notice what it says in verse 14. That we, henceforth, from here on out, be no more children. Again, we're talking about maturity. We don't want to just be children. No more children. Tossed to and fro. Carried about with every wind of doctrine. And so he's describing an immature person that is just constantly cost, tossed to and fro. Uh, that same phrase in the Greek is used in Luke chapter 8 to, distri- to describe the storm at the Sea of Galilee, where the disciples were just tossed to and fro. There was a lot of movement. They were up and down and left and right and all over the place. And movement in life can be deceiving. But can I tell you that movement does not equal maturity? And just because you're moving doesn't mean you're maturing. See, some people have this idea that if they're really busy and if their calendar is really full and if they're just doing a lot of things and they're walking in spiritual maturity. But the question is not, are you going? The question is, are you growing? Some people are just tossed to and fro. They're all over the place. They're doing a lot. But don't mistake movement for maturity. 
because some people are just walking with this spiritual instability, all emotions up and down and all over the place. And so the first question that we have to ask is, am I walking with stability? One of the greatest things that you can do in your life, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your workplace is to demonstrate consistency. I'm just going to be the same person every day. I'm not going to be making people guess what version of myself that they're going to get today. I'm going to be the same person. I'm going to walk with stability, not tossed to and fro. And then he, he continues the verse in verse 14. He says, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slide of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. We need to know today. It's so vitally important that we know today that the culture is lying to us. You have to recognize this. The, the, the devil is the father of lies. In Jewish culture, to be the father of something meant that you were the originator of that thing. And so the devil is the originator of lies. He's pretty good at it. And they are lying in wait to deceive using the slight of men. Uh, the, the, the word picture here is that of someone that is cheating a trickster that's using loaded dice. See, the enemy is using loaded dice against us. And we have to recognize that the culture is lying about our identity. He's lying about what's going to bring you fulfillment. He's lying about what's going to bring you satisfaction. And we are so lost and confused today because we are listening to the lies of the enemy. That's why David in Psalm 122, his main prayer request was, Lord, would you deliver me from these lies? When was the last time we prayed that? Yeah, we recognize there's a lot of lies in the culture today, but are you praying, uh, Lord, would you give me the discernment to see the lies that are being communicated to me? so that I can walk with spiritual maturity, that I'm not going to be carried about with every wind of doctrine, by every new YouTube video, and by every new uh, podcast. No, maybe I believe this, and no, have you heard that? And, and we're constantly tossed to and fro. And so if we're going to walk with spiritual maturity, we have to be walking with stability. Here's the second question. Am I speaking with balance? When it comes to my communication, when it comes to my speaking in the world today, am I speaking with balance? Because notice what he says in verse 15. Are you still with me today? Notice it, verse 15 but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. And so am I speaking with this balance that we're commanded to speak with, with truth and in love? It's been said that truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. Did you catch that today? That truth without love is brutality. If you are just constantly speaking the truth and beating people over the head with it, that's probably not gonna have a great return. But if you are just loving someone and showing empathy, but you never get around to the truth, that also will have a damaging effect. And so we are called to be faithful to the truth. We can't compromise on the truth. We speak the truth. But are you speaking the truth in love? To not tell someone the truth is one of the most unloving things that you can do to that person. If I am sick and unhealthy and I go to the doctor and the doctor says, everything's fine. How was your day? How many would say that's a loving thing to do? No, I need him to tell me what's wrong with me. And so we have to have the ability as followers of Jesus in the world today, when the culture is going against God's word, we have to have the art and the ability to speak the truth with love. Am I speaking with balance? And then here's the third question. Am I doing my part? And so when it comes to spiritual maturity, we have to ask the question, am I doing my part? Am I doing what God wants me to do? Because notice the last verse in our text, verse 16, from whom the whole body talking about the body of Christ, the church, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. You say, what does that mean? He's saying that every person in the church has a part to play. That every joint supplieth and according to the effectual working of every part, okay, every part, maketh 
increase of the body into the edifying of itself in love. You know how we build up the church? You know, you know how we have a healthy church? We do our part. Every person steps up and does what God has called them to do. Vince Lombardi said this, individual commitment to a group effort, uh, that is what makes a team work, a company work, a society work, a civilization work, and I would say a church work. That when every individual is coming together and we are, Philippians 127, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, Paul here is talking about the family of God. He's talking about the body of Christ. And maybe you're here this morning at this 930 service and you don't know that you are a part of the family of God. Maybe you don't know that you are in the body of Christ. And the Bible says this in John chapter one, verse number 11. It's such a powerful verse. And and as I read this verse, would you join me in standing this morning as we close? It says in John chapter one, verse number 11. It says, he came unto his own, talking about Jesus. He came into his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, so if you did receive Jesus Christ, as many as received him, to them gave he power, ability to become the sons of God, to become the children of God, sons and daughters in the family of God, even to them that believe on his name. And so this morning, if you're not sure that you're in the family of God, this verse tells us exactly how we can enter into God's kingdom, enter into God's family by believing on his name. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. It's according to his mercy that he saves us. And I'm so thankful today that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And even in the first service today, we had people that were welcomed into the family of God. And I love it when the family expands so that we can do more work for the glory of God. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes today as we close.